Hi, I'm David Barr-Kirtley, host of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy and author of the book Save Me, Please, and Other Stories, which is available now on Amazon.com. We had a great conversation about the book back in episode 500, so definitely check that out if you missed it. And I want to give a special thank you to Pablo Ruz, who just gave the book a five-star review on Amazon.com. It says, I've been following David's podcast for a few years now, and it came as a surprise when he announced the long-overdue release of a book collecting his best short stories. I had heard Power Armor a Love Story and was curious, so I bought it, not really being an avid reader of short stories, and it was a great surprise. The structure of the book in three parts is a good choice. One fantasy, two sci-fi, and three horror, as it gives you some idea of what kind of stories you'll encounter in each section. And they're all really good, at times truly excellent. For me, the highlights are They Go Bump, Red Road, and the superlative Veil of Ignorance. The ideas in the science fiction stories are all thought-provoking. The fantasy worlds are well-realized in just a few pages. But most important of all, the stories are a lot of fun, even though sometimes the dark humor caught me off guard. I hope we can get some more books from Geek's Guide Press in the future. So big thanks again to Pablo Ruz for that great review. Alright, so now let's get to our show. Wired.com presents The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. And here is your host, David Barr Kirtley. Hello, and welcome to episode 543 of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. Today on the show, we'll be discussing the classic 70s science fiction movies Logan's Run, Beneath the Planet of the Apes, Silent Running, The Andromeda Strain, and Colossus the Forbin Project. And this will include spoilers for all of those movies, so just be aware of that. And I'm joined by three guests. So first up, we've got Andrea Kale, making her 29th appearance on the show. She's a graduate of the Odyssey Writers' Workshop, and her short fiction appears in the Writers of the Future anthology, Fantasy Magazine, and Lightspeed. She's been a television writer, producer, and script supervisor for shows such as Late Night with Conan O'Brien, The Chew, and WWE's Monday Night Raw and Friday Night SmackDown, and she's currently a writer for Pixelberry Studios. So, Andrea, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Dave. The next up, we've got Matthew Kressel also making his 29th appearance on the show. His novel Queen of Static, the follow-up to his groundbreaking novel King of Shards, is available now, and he recently launched a newsletter of writing advice at outerdeep.substack.com. Together with Ellen Datlow, he hosts the monthly Fantastic Fiction reading series in New York City. So, Matt, welcome to the show. Thanks, Dave. Good to be back. And also joining us today is Tom Gerenser, making his 27th appearance on the show. His short fiction appears in magazines such as Galaxy's Edge and in books such as New Voices in Science Fiction. He's the author of the business book Think Like Google and the short story collection Intergalactic Refrigerator Repairman Seldom Carry Cash. And his popular science book How It's Made, written for the Discovery Channel, is out now. So, Tom, welcome to the show. Happy to be back, Dave. Thanks for having me. Okay, so let's start off with Andrea. And have you tell us about your history watching Logan's Run? Well, I remember watching this a lot when I was a kid and being kind of obsessed with it. Um, Maybe probably because I had a a crush on Michael York. (laughs) Um, Although I was really young, I don't know why I would have a crush on Michael York. But but yeah, I watched it a lot when I was a kid. Um, And 
I, but for some reason, I never remember the end. So the end was actually kind of a surprise for me. Mm-hmm. Um, but I always remember the the scene, the the carousel, and the renew, and the renew, and the and the um, the robot in the ice cave. Um, but yeah, it was a movie I watched quite a bit when I was a kid. Yeah, so I guess I'll explain. So the premise of this is basically we're in the future, and we at least initially think that the Earth has been ecologically destroyed to the point that nobody can live outside. And there's one human settlement that we know of, which is this sort of utopian slash dystopian society that lives in kind of this big domed shopping mall kind of complex. (laughs) And because uh, they have limited space, they have this system where when somebody turns 30, they basically sacrifice themselves for the good of society and a new person is born to replace them. But as Andrea was alluding to, there's this sort of carousel thing, which the people in this society believe is some way that they could potentially, it's like a lottery that you could somehow not uh, die. I'm a little vague on the details of exactly how that was supposed to work. I think it's but you, you're reborn as a new person. So I like think. your soul goes yeah, into I one of the so. new babies or something? Something like that, yeah. Hmm. That- I don't know. That was my takeaway from it. Okay. Well, you've watched this way more times apparently than I have. So, <laughs> but uh, how about Matt? What do you, is that correct? My Is my understanding of this correct as far as you can tell? Com- completely wrong. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> um, yeah. I mean, I, I understood, like, I think you're led to believe that there was some kind of apocalypse in the outside world and that humanity's retreated into these uh, dome cities and, it's kind of uh, what you would first think might be like uh, sort of a hedonistic pseudo utopia. And then you slowly come to realize that, oh, no, once you turn 30, they're basically just killing everybody. Um, it reminded me actually of uh, Arthur C. Clarke has a novel called The City and the Stars. And there's a similar premise where there's like a city of humans living in a dome and they are, in fact, reborn. They're, they're like, consciousness is frozen in a computer for like a thousand years and then they come back later uh, as the same person with the same memories but i think in in this case it's like it becomes clear fairly early on that nobody is being reborn this is just their way of making sure that they don't get overpopulated Mm -hmm. and so is this movie that you watched a lot growing up or do you have any a nostalgic attachment to it so i think i was a flicker i mean like i i used to always just really change channels and like sometimes try to watch like two things at once. So I feel like I, I, I saw parts of this film, uh, but never the whole thing through until maybe I was in my twenties or early thirties. Um, and like Andrea, I always seem to forget the ending. Like I remember <laughs> the, the carousel very clearly and I have very vivid memories of them leaving the city mm-hmm. and, you know, walking around Washington DC and just the, the haunting image of like, uh, you know, the Washington Monument, the Lincoln Memorial. And, and um, but like after that, it just sort of gets fuzzy in my mind. But I did, I did rewatch it, uh, I don't know, a decade or two ago. And I, and I did remember it after that. But uh, I, I, I did have pretty fond memories of this. I think I also, um, you know, as a young boy, I thought that the women in this were very, very pretty. Um, I was well, Farrah Fawcett is in it. <laughs> Farrah Fawcett and and uh, 
Definitely, it seems like a utopian society. If you're yeah. a utopian society, <laughs> there's there's lots of uh, you know uh, mutual uh, sex going on, and uh, <laughs> you know. Um, but I think actually, when I first saw this, I was probably even like you know too young to even appreciate that. I was just like, oh wow, cool futuristic society, and I love their uh, their guns for some reason. Just the way that like the flames <laughs> shoot out the side is like so a, bizarre. You know, a ten year old boy. I'm like, that's so cool. It's funny now that you mentioned it. I hadn't thought about this, but this did kind of predict Tinder, you know. Where you just like, <laughs> right? Yeah. But you Swipe put yourself right. in the circuit. Yeah. <laughs> really? Yeah. Um, yeah, because in this society, you sort of like, you just sort of dial up a, a sex date for the evening and it's kind of random. Um, and you can, yeah, I think, I guess you can go through a couple and pick one you like or something. But yeah, so it's, it's sort of like Tinder. Um, the, how about, the one thing I will oh, say is is just that I thought it was a you know for its time it was a little uh, forward thinking in terms of you know uh, there was like a couple people that were like oh do you prefer women and then there was like yeah. a man in the circuit is like hmm are you interested and he's like oh maybe later you know like it wasn't like oh my god you know yeah I, you know it was just like they were like yeah that this in this society that's fine and I was like I respect that for a movie that came out in seventy six you know. Mm-hmm. Um, but so, so Tom, what's your history with the uh, Logan's Run? I thought I had seen it, but uh, when I started watching it, I realized I had never seen it. I had seen that there was a television show spinoff, and I had seen that oh. growing up. Like episodes of it would be on all the time, and and the TV show always bothered me because it was just people running around in hallways. Um, <laughs> and so I never really liked that, and I thought I wasn't going to like this, and I and I actually didn't. And so my how I came away from it is is I thought Logan's Run is basically a richly imagined future where beautiful young people spend their time riding around in poorly rendered trams, uh, <laughs> touching old men and throwing each other at cats. And the plot the plot really came together for me uh, when Michael York says most of this made sense until we met that low budget robot. And this prompts him to tell the female lead, look, nobody's going to pay to see this movie unless you take your clothes off. And she quickly agrees. And then the movie builds to a, a rousing climax where York observes that Abraham Lincoln is old. And after that, there's some mildly interesting denouement where everybody cheers after York destroys the city by moaning. <laughs> Pretty much, yeah. <laughs> so I'm sorry. It sounded like you guys really liked it. And I really- No, I, no, no. Wait, no, no. We didn't get into our opinions. Oh, yeah. Okay. Our opinions. Well, yeah. well, no. well, well, let me say, I mean, I have-, I have uh, a certain amount of nostalgic attachment to this movie because I, I saw it as a kid and really the only thing that stuck in my mind from seeing it as a kid. Okay. So the plot is that there's a, um, there are these, uh, policemen sort of called sand men and their job is to hunt down and kill anyone in the city who doesn't show up at the point of time for the carousel, you know, ceremony thing. And so then the supercomputer that runs the city assigns our main character, Logan, to pretend to be one of these runners and infiltrate them to find out where their their sanctuary is, that they're all the um, refugees are escaping to. And so they have these crystals in their hands that say, that show how close they are, how old they are, basically, how close they are to having to um, report for the caros- for carousel duty. And so he says, well, nobody's going to believe that I'm a runner because I'm two I'm years away from from this. And they change the color of the jewel in his hand to make it look like he's about to die and he says will, will i get my years back and the computer is ominously silent and i i think that's a great moment and that's the thing that stuck with me as a kid that him him just asking will i get my years back and, and getting no reply 
Right. Um, that that I thought all of that was cool. everything you just said. The whole setup in that moment, I thought all of that was amazing. And then I stopped watching right there and started watching again the next night, thinking like this movie's awesome. <laughs> and then from then on, it, it just kind of yeah, it's, yeah. It, it, you're you're right. Well, it it is. It's the setup is great. Well, let and me just, the, and then it just falls off the edge of the yeah. Let me just yeah. say, and then I rewatched it like twenty years ago. And all that I really remember from that was that how stupid I thought it was when they get outside and like everything's basically fine. And it's like, yeah. why are they yeah. living in this city if everything's fine outside? Yeah. And yeah. but and, and I thought the movie basically ended like I think Matt and maybe Andrew were saying I basically remembered it ending as soon as they get outside. And yeah. so then as soon as I or on this watch, I was like, wait, that's halfway through the movie. There's a whole other half of the yeah. movie that There's just made hour no impression yeah. on my mind. whatsoever. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Because nothing well, really the, happens. The whole, yeah, no, the whole scene or the whole several scenes in the uh, in the Capitol building. It's just like this long, dragged out conversation with with this with Peter Ustinov, and it's like super yeah. boring. Yeah, and he's quoting T. S. Eliot, and it's like, what is happening? <laughs> oh, is he? Is he really? Yeah, all this stuff oh. about yeah. the cats. That's all yeah, T. S. It's from Eliot. the musical Cats. You know the. Well, yeah. <laughs> oh, that's kind of cool. Um, but yeah, so I totally agree that. Like the second half of this movie is really super forgettable, but I, I think it has. Yeah, I, I think like I think we're all pretty much in agreement that it's got sort of great ideas, yeah. um, and just like the world building makes no sense. Yeah, uh, you know, like why is like why did the um, you know the the resistance? Why are they sending people onto the sanctuary that they've apparently never seen and doesn't exist and is actually a there's this killer robot that's like freezing. It's just like none of this stuff yeah. holds together at all. Yeah. Um, so I don't know. And the uh, ending is just ridiculous too. Just like. It's it's that old, uh, you know, you, you break the computer by giving right. it a question that it can't yeah. answer. Yeah. Which is right. ridiculous. It's like, well, you know, maybe Sanctuary doesn't exist. The computer's like, no, it has to exist. And then the yeah. world blows up and everybody's happy yeah. ever after. Everybody's happy when their city blows up that they've lived in their whole lives. They're like, yeah, hey. and they're all going <laughs> to starve to death. And they're like, like oh, look, an old – yeah, because none of them have done a single yeah. day's They have no idea how to survive outside of that right. city. So what are they going to do? Right. Yeah, it's like, it's like the end of Wally. Yeah. So I, I think that, like – Obviously, it, or it seems indisputable to me that that this movie makes no logical sense at all. Uh, but it has a lot of um, cool, like, ideas. I mean, they're mostly sort of familiar ideas, but they're still cool. And, like, it has a certain sort of visual flair and sort of um, mm -hmm. style to it. Yeah. It definitely um, borrowed a lot, I think, from... Was Star Wars before this or after? This? Right after. after. Right after Seven, oh. 79 is Star Interesting. Wars. I, I thought feel it was like 77. 77. 77. Yeah. Yeah. Right. So I, yeah. So I feel like, I feel like some of the uniforms, um, like Michael York at times, like if you squint, he sort of looks like Luke Skywalker in mm. Return of the Jedi. You know, I mean, obviously that's the black later. outfit. Yeah. Yeah. And there was just something the about hair. it. Um, I guess it was sort of the seventies science fiction aesthetic. Um, yeah. Like, like the first, I guess half of the film, I, you know, I, I'm like, I'm like riveted by it. And then yeah. Uh, yeah. as soon as they get outside and then they meet the old man, I, I mean, there must've been like 20 or 30 minutes of them just talking to him yeah. and these cats leaping around. And yeah. And I was like, Oh my God, this is. Yeah. And they <laughs> learn you know, nothing. Like they, they, they never, nothing. they learn nothing. Like you expect to find out what happened. Right. Nothing. 
There was one yeah. affecting moment where they're walking through a cemetery and they're like, what are these? Yeah. What is, what are these names? Cause they've never seen anyone like die yeah. other than through carousel and be honored that way. And and that was, I thought that was affecting and um, that was cool. You know, and, and I think that there, there was some power in them seeing an old man for the first time. And, and she's like, your, your wrinkles on your face, do they hurt? And then yeah. he's like, huh. And then uh, there's this touching moment where, you know, she, she, she caresses his face and he flinches. Cause it's like, he hasn't had another human being touch him, you know, in decades. And that I thought would work, but it, it, the, the whole scene there, I think goes on way too long. Yeah. Yeah. No, there was good stuff contrasting, you know, or having, you know, seeing our society basically from the point of view of their, you know, their society that there was some good sci-fi stuff in there. And like, um, th- there's a scene where they're like fleeing through this like sex club kind of thing that yeah. I thought was yeah. like kind of visually <laughs> interesting, not just because yeah. of the nudity, but it was like, <laughs> you know, it was all like sort of psychedelic and I don't oh, know. Yeah. There's a lot of psychedelic in these, in these seventies yeah. movies. Yeah. Uh, but yeah. I can't, I can't handle that stuff. I saw too much of that as a kid. Yeah. <laughs> and I there, thought- there was also, oh, go ahead. Oh, I just feel like there's a, there's just a degree to which in the 70s, like every director was trying to be an auteur, even for sort of a dumb-ish yeah. sci-fi yeah. flick like this one. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, I, I was wondering in that scene, I was wondering if it was supposed to be that they were having like involuntary orgasms as they were running through because they kept kind of stopping and going, oh, and getting like stunned. <laughs> and I was like, well, they can't just be doing that because there's like a beautiful, you know, person of the whatever sex they choose in front of them. They're just suddenly like incapacitated for like five seconds. I think there was like supposed to be aphrodisiac drugs in the air or yeah, something. That's, 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 and yeah. they were just getting pulled into like these orgies. Yeah. Um, yeah. So, but there was a scene where they're fleeing and there's an older woman. Uh, I forget the actress's name, but, but she's like, Linda what? something. Lara Lindsay. Lara, Lara Lindsay. That's it. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, um, She's like, oh no, I'm young, I'm young. Look at me, and and then it's, she's very clearly over thirty, and and it's like I just thought it was like there's a comment on like aging. It's like, oh, you know, you're over thirty, you're you're no longer worth anything to society, yeah. and and I just I just that part of it I think is is affecting and and, re- and relevant these and, days. Yeah, <laughs> right, yeah. right. Um, yeah, yeah. It seems like today it, it drives me crazy how every movie has to have you know the the brilliant scientist who's like. The smartest person in the world is like 17. They, they, they always, you know, they've got zero experience, but they're somehow like, the, you know, the, the, on top of their field. And they've got yeah. to do that with every movie these days. Like when they remade The Thing, like all of them are just super young. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. Well, let's come back to that when we talk about the Andromeda strand, because that was one yeah. of the things I wanted to mention. But just yeah. to wrap up um, Logan's run, I mean... Um, I just wanted to mention there's like a shot where he's walking in front of these banks of computers and each, it's like red, yellow, something or whatever. Clocks. Yeah, green. Clocks. Yeah. It's yeah. like, and it's really, I mean, there's like, yeah, like, a, like again, there's this visual flair to the movie. And um, I don't know if you guys saw, they're were, they were going to, there was, there's been like a talk of remaking this and like some of the people that have come and gone. Uh, Wait, I had a list here. Like Brian Singer, Christopher McQuarrie, Alex Garland, and Ken Levine, who was the basically the creator of the Bioshock games. Like, I think, you know, somebody like that, especially Alex, I would love to see Alex Garland's yeah. Logan's run, you know, yeah. imagining, where you could take some of these interesting ideas and visuals and actually put a coherent story, story. behind <laughs> them. Yeah. 
No, that would be great. I'm. That's one of the things I was thinking too. Is that like I'm surprised nobody's rebooted this yes, uh, yet. We're in the we're in the age of rebooting everything, right? You know how well is Logan's Run known to people who under forty? Probably right. not well. That's what I'm saying. That, <laughs> yeah, that's probably the main reason. Yeah. Yeah, it's only us over thirty types. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> us, us irrelevant people. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Carousel, carousel, <laughs> renew, <laughs> renew. But Somebody else recently I saw was quoting that the robot line, the uh, plankton from the sea, <laughs> which was, was awesome. Yeah, I, somebody else, I think maybe on Twitter, somebody was referencing, it and then you know they were like, "Do you know what I'm talking about?" And most people don't. <laughs> so, so yeah, I mean, th- maybe not the most significant movie of all time, but enough. Like, again, just that one scene where he says, well, I get my uh, years back. That's enough for me to say, like, yeah, this is kind of like a uh, a, a movie that's worth, uh, yeah. worth thinking about. So that just, was cool. just a point that I want to come back to later is I feel like a lot of these movies that we watch, these five, I see later films steal so much from it. Oh, yeah. 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 And so, books, too. Even books. Like, a lot of the Hitchhiker's Guide uh, yeah. trilogy stole Red, stuff from Red several Dwarf. of these movies. Yeah, right. There's that scene where they they discover the, like the little girl hiding, uh, like among the ruins, and I'm like, oh, it's uh, it's new from. I was aliens. just yeah, yeah. exactly. And I'm like, it looked oh, exactly that, like her. Yeah, like like down to the hair color, the expressions. Yeah. yeah. Well, the movie, the Michael Bay movie, The Island, is mm-hmm. more or less a remake of Logan's Run, in my opinion. Mm, yeah. Yeah. But uh, these, but these, these several movies you had us watch, though, Dave, are also borrowing heavily from star trek the original series there was a lot of stuff that showed up visually yeah mm-hmm. and, and thematically and uh, mm-hmm. some of the ideas as well well mm-hmm. I, I i was thinking as i'm watching them most of these movies are message movies yeah you know not just straight up adventure but they're messages um mm-hmm. and i'm not saying that in a good way because they they tend to be a little preachy <laughs> um some more than others but um yeah. No. Well, I I mean, yeah, maybe let's come back to that if we have time um, after, at the end. But I'll just say quickly, I mean, like people who sort of came of age in the 70s often will say that Star Wars kind of ruined everything because before that, science fiction movies were, you know, serious and thoughtful and, you but- know, dealt with serious uh, political issues and stuff. And then Star Wars kind of made everything just about entertainment. It's- but... <laughs> See, from my point of view, I think the exact opposite. Star Wars made them interesting. Yeah. It made them adventures as opposed, you know, you can make a message movie and make it good. These are not good message movies. Right. That's what I was going to say. Like a lot of these, like they have, yeah, the message, I guess, is is important. But the way it's delivered is so like preachy and heavy handed that it doesn't have like the narrative to drive it along. Whereas like, yeah. I mean, obviously star Wars, does not have a, a message. I don't think, but like, you know, Terminator, no. Terminator has this, you know, it's like, yeah. 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 All right. Um, well, before we get too yeah. far off track, so let's, let's, so speaking of uh, movie, bad message movies, uh, that mm. thing that brings us to beneath the planet of the apes. Yeah. So <laughs> we're going to go elsewhere with that. But okay. Yeah. So I did, did too. I. Big time. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Interesting. Well, <laughs> You're suggesting there was another movie on this list you thought I was going to... 
Yes. Absolutely. I'm, I'm curious if we all, all three of us think it was the same one. I think one. so. <laughs> I think so. <laughs> all right. Well, let's, let's, let's start off with Biddy at the Point of the Apes. So um, this is the first sequel of many to the classic Planet of the Apes starring Charlton Heston. Uh, so I thought I had seen this before, but now having watched it, I, I think I, I haven't. I think I had just watched the sort of cartoon adaptation as a kid enough times that I, I thought I had actually watched the original movie. Uh, so this was my first time. So um, had anybody seen this previously? I had. I had. I yeah, had. Many, I no, many times. Has. Many times when I was a kid, and yep. I always seemed to be home from school sick with strep throat. So I conveniently <laughs> came down with strep throat right before I watched this again as an adult. I <laughs> nice. you can still hear it in my voice, and so I felt uh, like I was thrown back in time to my parents' couch watching this. <laughs> nice. Uh, so, so Tom, you said that you thought that this was going to be a turd. I think yeah. that's your exact quote. Yeah. Uh, and I, <laughs> you know, I I I sounds like I'm going to go against the grain here, but I I had such a t- maybe because of my expectations were so low from what I remembered, I actually really liked this and I think so the only thing I remembered about it was the final scene, which we can do spoilers, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. The final scene where everybody dies, everybody dies, you know, yeah. including everybody in the whole world dies. Just, and it's just, very just people on earth to be fair. Well, that's true. Yeah. And it's very abrupt. It's like, everything's going, what's going to happen? And then, and now the planet is dead. And yeah. And credits come up and you're like, okay. Yeah, and I remember exactly. That's the only thing I remember from the movie. And I hated it. I hated that they ended things that way. And I still do. But going back and watching this again, knowing that I, that was coming, I was like, you know, this movie has a lot going for it. It has a solid plot. <laughs> it, things don't, things don't get stagnated anywhere. There's no boring scenes. Um, there's, there's really cool images of like the library of Congress, like sunk down underneath the ground and an old subway station and and like a city bus stuck in like a, a solidified magma flow and like a lot of really cool images and cool concepts in the movie that I, I ended up liking it a lot. Yeah, it's like every New York City landmark somehow ended up in the same. Yeah, the the New York Stock Exchange was up by the library, which by Radio City. I was like, wait, those things are way far apart. Right. (laughs) Um, Things moved in the apocalypse. That's pretty far to move. (laughs) I I will say, though, Tom, I mean, I I don't know if it's just because I watched the cartoon as a kid, but what you're saying, this idea uh, in the movie of like the mutant humans – living in the subway, you know, the ruined subway tunnels with all the New York City monuments with psychic powers, worshiping a uh, nuclear bomb, like has a weird emotional power to me. So um, I don't know if, I guess, Matt, you agree with that? It does. It reminded me of Canticle for Leibowitz. Yeah. So it's like the the sort of remnants of civilization and, and the survivors don't really understand the context of what they're worshiping and you know so the the mutant survivors that have somehow developed telepathy um worship uh, a nuclear bomb and it's not just any nuclear bomb it's the alpha and omega bomb which is basically a planet killer um and it's gold somehow yeah um (laughs) and they all worship it which which i actually found really haunting um like there's something about their singing and then and then when they reveal their faces that they pull it off and it it's um i think you're just supposed to be really horrified that they're, they're oh my god look how ugly they are they they must be evil and i and then like i think by from today's point of view it's like 
oh no, like you sh- we should feel sorry for them. Like they- they've been through hell. And, um, but I, I don't think that the, the director necessarily wanted you to feel that way about them. I think the director wanted you to be horrified by them. Yeah. Um, which, which was an interesting point of view, but, uh, yeah, like, like visually it, it was, it was really cool. I, I love the, um, like, I actually think for its time, this, the special effects were pretty good, like in terms of like the, the, the ape faces and, and, uh, the way they did like Grand Central Station. Um, and, um, you know, the, it was entertaining in the sense that it had a better pacing than some of the other movies we watched for this, but, um, well, so so I thought the second half was way better than the first yeah, half. Yeah, and I like you know I I liked I loved that they did a Rogue One ending where they were just like fuck it we're gonna kill everybody. <laughs> um, this is and I was like I, I appreciate that you know I I, I really appreciate that because I I think that um, you know the tendency these days is to just like drag everything on, but of course they they do that with this series. But uh, yeah, <laughs> so Andrea. Beneath, yes. the, beneath the Planet of the Apes. Well, I, I uh, loved all the Planet of the Apes movies when I was a kid. I used to sit and watch them. They would have, you know, marathons. Um, I would watch them with my brother. We, you know, my brother was the one who introduced me to all things science fiction, movies, books. Um, so I, I have a very uh, uh, soft spot in my heart. And I remember liking this just because, you know, I was a kid. You know, you don't think about quality of movies. You just like a good adventure story. Uh, this is the first time I'd seen it in, I couldn't even tell you how long, at least 25, 30 years. Um, and, uh, it's, it's, uh, it's bad. Um, yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but it's, you know, it's still got that fun, silly seventies quality to it that I enjoy. Um, but, uh, yeah, I'm sitting at the, at the end of the going well. You know, Queensboro Plaza is not anywhere near <laughs> Grand Central Station. It doesn't lead there. There are no circular tunnels. The stock exchange is not near the the library in Radio City. And how did how did a, even a nuclear bomb? How did the nuclear bomb change East Coast rocky uh, granite coasts <laughs> and geology to you know Southwest sandstone and uh, buttes? It just didn't make any damn sense at all. Um, well, well, so so I started watching this movie, and I was astounded that Charlton Heston returned for this. Yeah, yeah. And then, yes. And then it turned out he really didn't. Uh, but he was. I, what do you mean? Well, did you? Okay, so so I did not look it up. So so they, so they begged him to be in the sequel, and he didn't want to be in the sequel. And finally, he agreed, as long as he his character had to die, so they couldn't come back to him again. And um, he he would only be in the movie for like. 12 minutes or something like that. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's very clear that he didn't want to be in this. Yeah. And then, and then, so they cast someone who looks exactly similar, <laughs> like like a similar archetype. But it's so disturbing when they, when they're standing face to face, the other guy is like one third his size or something. Yeah. It looks like a, it looks like a giant next to a, <laughs> like, like a mini me or something like that. And, and so, yeah. And so that's the big problem with this movie to me is that basically the entire first half is like, you remember Planet of the Apes? Well, here it is again. Yeah, except yeah. like shitty. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. We're, the the movie's obviously so bad that we're gonna the first ten minutes of this movie are gonna be the last ten minutes of the last yeah. movie. And yeah. they also had the the Brett Brent Brent. What a name, Brent. Um, say the same line on the beach. Yeah, mm-hmm. they did it. They actually did it. Right. It's like you couldn't come up with something else. 
<laughs> so yeah, so I mean, but I, I, so to the extent that this is, I feel like this is almost a better movie without the Point of the Apes stuff in it. You know, the yeah. stuff, the, the non Point of the Apes stuff is more interesting to me than the the stuff that carried over from the first movie. But yeah. I, I agree with you. But I think that Star Trek: The Original Series did it better because with the menagerie, like that that yeah. which came before this movie. That you know, you know the episode I'm talking about yeah, where the, the, pi- the original pilot, right? The original pilot. Oh, was, right, was re- right. It was the same set. It was the same setup. It wasn't the you know this is the Earth actually, but it was these people can control things with their minds. They can make you see or do whatever they want. And how are you going to get away? How are you going to beat them? And uh, and they, they it was they, like the same thing. It was like watching. I was like, oh, that's where you guys got that from. You got. But it they from totally, Star Trek. they totally didn't use any of their powers to fight the apes like what are you doing no there like, was you- some throwaway line where they were like oh the apes are too stupid we can't use our powers on oh them. but it was like that but makes you can. no sense you, you can make them see <laughs> stuff but you yeah. can't make them feel pain i guess that's kind of i don't know uh. but i do feel like it was a running issue with a lot of these 70s movies that somehow they had not figured out how to make the ending of a movie feel like the ending yeah. of a movie where just the the credits yeah. start playing you're like wait what that yeah. Like, totally yeah. They just me. they don't they don't they don't end, they stop. <laughs> yes. <laughs> right. Like all of them pretty much. Almost. They haven't learned plot arcs. Yeah. They really Or haven't. plot, really. Well, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> well, but it's even like not even to me it's to my mind, it's not even so much a plot problem. It's just like, you know, it's like at some point they figured out, okay, to make the movie feel like it's over, you have to have some long panning shot away from something and with music, <laughs> yeah. you know, to let you know, let the cue the audience that this is, you're about to end the movie. And they just hadn't figured that out yet or something <laughs> at this point. Um, but yeah, I don't know. Any other thoughts on Beneath the Planet of the Apes? I Terrible like the, fight uh, scenes. <laughs> yeah, it was. Yeah, that's another thing they got from Star Trek. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I liked the uh, the actor who played the ape general. He's he was from Barney Miller. That's the only, yes. I could hear his voice was so iconic, yeah. and I was like, yep. "This just this like amiable, overweight cop." Yep. <laughs> I, right. I hear him in that ape every time he speaks. Uh, I know there's like 20 other Planet of the Apes movies. I I watched some of the newer ones, The Rise of the Planet of the Apes. I watched the first two. The or ones three made of those. in the 90s. Yeah. Yeah, they're uh, terrible too. Possibly even later than it must be later than I think it was the two thousands that they were they started yeah. coming out. But um yeah, Andy Serkis. But but um but Andrea, should I continue yeah. like how did they continue the series after they blow well, up the earth in right? this movie? Well, here we here's how they do this. Um so the next movie is uh Escape the Planet of the Apes, I think. And it has Cornelius and Zira getting in a spaceship. And going back in time to Earth from whence Taylor and Brent came and becoming like circus sideshow people. It's awful. And then she's (laughs) pregnant and she gives birth to a baby who also can speak. Um, And then they're taken and I guess, uh, can I spoil it? Does anybody give a shit? Oh, please spoil it. <laughs> They're killed, I think. And the baby is taken by Ricardo Montalban, who's a circus, uh, uh, who owns a circus and is brought up in the circus, but he can speak. And so he learns how to be, um, um, he, that's how he escapes. And he learns, like, you know, he learns how to be a human. And then that's how that ends. Zira and Cornelius die and their baby escapes. And then the next one after that 
is another dystopia where all the animals on the planet have died, all the cats and, and dogs. So people have adopted um, see, the baby's name, the Cornelius and Zira's baby's name is Caesar. Um, oh, yeah. I remember and that, they yeah. and he somehow gives t- teaches all the other apes how to speak. And now people in this dystopian future have now taken apes who speak as like slaves, essentially, although they're supposed to be pets, but they're slaves. And and uh, Caesar, the baby of Zero and Cornelius, leads um, a revolt. And that's how the apes become dominant. Man, you've really watched these. I have watched all of them, yeah. <laughs> I have I, totally watched all of them. And there was also I, like the, the remakes about 10 years ago, right? Yeah. Those are the, yeah. the terrible ones. They're, those They were bad too, but in their own Yeah. Way. So that so that makes it – it's kind of a cool loop when you think about it. Like that's how they – it's kind of like a back to the future thing. That's how they yeah, originally that's how got there yeah. is they went back in time from the future. Right. 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 I don't know if I'm going to watch any of those based on, <laughs> I'm definitely based on that description. I, but. Yeah. I had to watch them all when I was a kid just because my older brothers were watching them. When you said we had to watch this one, I was like, oh, not that. I <laughs> thought I'd never have to watch. It's like you told me I had to go in another nursing home the rest of my life. I'd be like, no, please. I don't ever want to. I thought I was going to enjoy it as more than I did because I thought it was going to be like a real, uh, you know, nostalgic thing. But it just. Yeah. I loved like, it. Has anyone ever seen the cartoon? I loved the cartoon. As I, remember yeah, the- yes, I remember. Yes. No, I remember. Just looking it, by. But- yeah. Okay. Um, all right. So anyway, that was Point of the Apes. And so next I want to bring up Silent Running, which I have a sneaking suspicion maybe. Some of you were alluding to earlier. Love the message. Hate the movie. <laughs> yeah. Well, so so this movie is always I've never I'd never seen this before, but this movie has always had this kind of legendary status for me because my parents in when they were in graduate school, they went out to a um drive-in movie theater and they watched Soylent Green and Silent Running. Mm-hmm. And then they were so depressed. There were a couple other movies and they just came <laughs> home. That should include you right there. Yeah. And, they were, and they were so depressed that they signed up for like the Sierra Club and stuff like that to try to <laughs> avert the horrible futures. Well, I mean, um, it, I, I guess the message worked then, right? Yeah. 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 So I've always thought that was kind of kind of a cool um, you know, example of how science fiction could, you know, actually influence the world. Um, but I'd never seen the movie before. Had any anybody else ever seen seen this before? No, never seen yes, it. I, 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 have. I haven't, no. I had, and I really didn't want to watch it again, but thank <laughs> you. But uh, no, I, I watched it. My I've mentioned several times my older brother who was like, oh, you have to watch this movie. And he, he, he doesn't really strike me as like a science fiction person. But then every one of these movies, I'm like, yeah, my older brother told me I had to watch it. <laughs> so like I watched it and I was like, this movie, like I, I get like I grew up in that time period. I get the drive for like we were watching – you know, industrialization do basically what it's continued to do now, getting mm-hmm. worse and worse and worse. And we had a lot of voices back then saying, no, we have to stop this. And and rightly so, you know, it was some bad things being done. But, um, but then you had a lot of this kind of movie with like the high pitched trilling soundtrack, like the, the woman singing. You Joan Baez. Yep. Was that Joan Baez? Yes, yep. it was. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Well, all of she- it. All of it. Okay. Okay. Well, she's she's famous, but I, but in this movie, I just I'm just like I can't stand that voice. You picture her wearing a flower print dress in a field of daisies somewhere with feathered hair, <laughs> and uh, and I, you know I grew up around hippies when I was a kid. There were so many. I was in I grew up in Maine in the 1970s, and it was like hippies were everywhere, 
And this movie is just watching Bruce Dern like agonize, you know, the sensitive murderer, introspective <laughs> murderer. Yeah. I'm just like, I, I, yeah, it makes sense why you had to kill those people. I get it, you know, but then watching well, him agonize over it. Well, let me just explain for, for listeners if you haven't seen the movie. So why he, so what happens is that we're in the future and I, I get the impression there is no trees left on earth somehow. Right. Yeah. And the only trees that still exist are on these, on these sort of like biosphere, Bio-dome. you know, domed structures on spaceships in or in the general vicinity of Saturn, I think. And there's like seven or something of these ships. And um and the call comes in that these that we don't care about these trees anymore, just jettison them, blow them up and come back and you know, we want these ships for commercial enterprises. And our main character, um, played by Bruce Stern, um, is is a botanist or something who, you know, loves these trees. And so he sort of goes AWOL and ends up killing his three crewmates and absconding with the trees. Um, is that, I don't know. Is yeah. That a, yeah. Is yeah. That yeah. That's, that's the plot. It's a cool, it's a cool premise. I got to say. Uh-huh. Um, so uh, Matt, having seen, you'd never seen this, but what was your uh, impression of see, watching this for the first time? I, I had never seen this before. So if, if you pitch this to me, like the premise of it, like I love, you know, space and space science, and I'm a total environmentalist, I would have been like, oh my God, that sounds great. This movie is just excruciating to watch. Yeah. Um, just <laughs> Bruce Dern's expressions, like just <laughs> mugging at the camera. Oh my gosh, the scenery and, chewing. <laughs> and it's so like over the top ridiculous. I'm like, well, you have to spoof this. Like you have like, and, and I, and as I'm watching this, I'm like, oh my God, that's what red dwarf is it's like this, mm-hmm. this guy alone <laughs> on a spaceship with nothing but droids to hang out with um so like yeah like the the long there's like two or three interludes where joan Baez is just like singing and then there's like music in the trees and it's like i don't know if i want to laugh and, and cry and oh man um so yeah it's like the, the pacing in this is so ridiculously slow. There's like these long scenes where he's just playing poker with robots. I know. <laughs> and I'm like, what, what, like, what, what is the tension here? What is the, you know, um, you know, I, I thought, so, okay. So what happens is he gets the order to blow up the, the biodomes and they have to eject them from the ship and nuke them. And he, instead of nuking them, he kills his, his partners and flies off alone. And then, so like the other ships start looking for him and he does this like weird maneuver around Saturn to evade them. And I was like, Oh, that's what this is going to be. It's going to be him trying to outrun them. But like, he just kind of does that. And then it, the movie keeps going and I'm like, Oh, well, what's, what's going to happen next? And nothing, nothing actually happens. next. Well, it does happen. Then he's like, then he's like, Oh, I I guess I just have to kill myself. Right. Um, Which, I don't there's know, the that, tragic deaths of Huey, Dewey, and Louie. Yeah. Huey, Dewey, and well, Louie. that yeah. was the that was or the no, one sorry, interesting one of part of the die. movie. One of them died, but the, but the other thing is like the big revelation. Like so, the, yeah, tension, the revelation. The revelation. Okay, so very late in the movie, the plants start dying, and I'm like, okay, if, if you're gonna have this, if you're gonna have like the plants start dying, like you should have it sooner, right? Because that like he's a botanist, that would be a challenge. Yeah. And so it takes him like forever to realize oh it's the sun the sun yeah <laughs> like you're out at saturn you're 
fucking botanist. Like, this is your job, your one job, and you can't figure out it's the sun. He's like, oh, we can solve it by adding more light. Um, and then not only does he, like, so you're like, oh, okay. He rigs up a bunch of, like, shitty spotlights. Yeah. yeah. It's like, it's like it looks like, they're, they're, you know, when there's, like, a, a fire and, and, like, the yeah. fire trucks come in with the spotlights. Like, that's what it, it was like. Or, or, like, some, you know oh, we're going to paint the wall. Can I borrow your spotlight for, yeah. for a night? It, it, so I was like, that, that's going to keep like- A forest alive. alive. Yeah. It, yeah. It was, I, I literally was like, you're kidding me. That's it? The sun? Yeah. <laughs> and, you know, parts of it, I was like, oh, that's cool. You know, it's like American Airlines owns this spaceship and there was like all these- That was cool. Cool yeah. crates in the back. Like, oh, the, but then like the actual biodomes, it- just looked like a shitty set and i'm yeah. like you know why couldn't they do the like the star trek thing where it's like you know you film it in an actual forest and say oh it's an alien world so wh- why couldn't they film it in an actual forest and say oh we're under the biodome and then just yeah. do a close shot and you would never know right but it's just like it just it literally looks like they just like took a sound stage yeah. and threw a bunch of dirt and well i actually i read that was a that was a budget thing they, they talked yeah. about that in the wikipedia article i mean the kind of interesting about thing about this movie is that it was directed by Douglas yes. Trumbull. This yes. was his directorial debut. He did yeah. the Blade oh, wow. Runner special yeah. effects. He did the special and, effects. Wait, I have did you see who wrote it too? Well, let me just let me, let me just say about Douglas Trumbull. So he did the special effects for 2001 A Space Odyssey, Close Encounters of the Third Kind, Star Trek The Motion Picture, and Blade Runner. Mm-hmm. Wow. Um, but so, so sorry, go ahead about the who wrote you know who, who wrote Did it? you see who wrote it? Mm, no. So... The two writers, two there's three writers on it. Two of them, one of them is Michael Cimino, who wrote Deer Hunter. Oh and, wow! And Derek Washburn, who is also uh, wrote Deer Hunter with him. And Michael Cimino won multiple Academy Awards for many movies. And then the third writer is Stephen Bochco of uh, Hill Street Blues fame. The biggest '80s producer of of shows, you know, one of the biggest producers in the '80s of hit shows. So these are not the. This is like the, you know, the the amateur outing of three of the biggest writers of the '80s. Yeah, it's shocking how terrible it is. They just needed needed some work and decided to phone it in. Or clearly, they needed ten years and then they became, you know. Shimito won, I don't know how many Academy Awards. Steven Bochco ruled the 80, 80s television. I, yeah, maybe, I, it's it's shocking. Well, maybe this I, was a I'll, learning process for them. I, I'll yeah. say, I mean, it sounds like you guys all just despised this movie. I like. I thought it was really boring, but I feel yeah. like pretty much all seventies movies are really boring. And I, I just it brings, oh, that's brings, not fair. Brings back to yeah. mind memories of being a kid and just always falling asleep in front of whatever you know TV show or movie was on. So that didn't strike me as much. I mean, and I, you know, I thought like Bruce Dern was all right. I mean, like he basically, this whole movie is basically, you're watching him talking to himself. Yeah. And I thought considering that's what the movie is, I thought he did a creditable <laughs> job of carrying the movie. Um, but you, you know what I was thinking as I was watching it? If I'm interrupting you, I'm sorry. If no, no, good. I was thinking of Moon. Yeah, which is basically I was, the I same was just going to say that. Yeah. I was just going to say that. But it's I, I actually, don't like that movie either. 
You don't like Moon? No, I just don't like movies where there's science fiction movies where there's one person in front of the camera the whole time. It just bothers me. See, but I was just going to say Moon knows how to do it. Yeah. Okay. Moon really knows how to do it. How to how's how to make it interesting and how to not well it has a plot and a point. I mean, it has a plot and 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 a satisfying arc and an ending. Um, but it also shows him going crazy in a credible way. Um, and he's just he's got you know he's a charismatic actor. Um, what's I can't remember his name. Uh, um, Sam Rockwell. Sam Rockwell. Yeah, yeah, yes. Yeah, that's a- um. And he has something to do and he has a point. You can see it, it's got a plot. This movie does not have a plot. Moon has yeah. a plot, but it's the same setup of a guy alone in space. Yeah. You know? Yes, but Bruce Dern has a hawk. So Yeah, well, it, yeah. right. And a caftan. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> uh, let me also, I don't know if you guys know this. So um, the robots in this, which <gasps> apparently were done by... Um, uh, what's it? I think it's from bilateral amputees. I think it's people who have have had their legs removed. I was and, wondering how they did that. And so they're just kind of walking around on their arms, you know, I guess on stilts or something. Are you oh, serious? Wow. wow. Yeah. Yeah, because it looked like very human-like the way they moved. It, and I, yes. I, I was like, oh, I wonder if if it's little people. But but so um so George Lucas watched this movie. <gasps> I- Sorry. I was going to say, I have a note that says here that look like Star Wars robots. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. He, and, yeah. and so he went to Ralph McQuarrie, the concept artist for Star Wars, and he says, I want one robot that looks like the robot from Fritz Lang's Metropolis, and I want one robot that looks like the robots from Silent Running. Huh? Nice. And so. Nice. Interesting so, bit of history So there. R2-D2 we have because of this. Yeah. All right. At least something good came out. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. But all and the your other parents ro- joining Sierra Club. Yeah, the, yeah. <laughs> they also look like the robots like on the Death Star in the original Star Wars. Oh, those like little Yeah, uh, the little garbage looking ones. Yeah. So the way they're kind of trapezoidal <laughs> yeah. on top. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So yeah, any other I don't know, any other thoughts on Silent Running before we move on? I don't have any thoughts on that movie at all. Yeah. Well, there is a theme among all of these movies that it's just kind of a warning of, of the yeah. dangers of, of where humanity's headed as a society, whether it's nuclear war or environmental catastrophe, which I yeah. think we're, we're still there. Yeah. We're I, yeah. I, I, we're still at both of those like full, yeah. full court, full yeah. court press. I think, and I think you're right. I think the, both of these movies do have a really good tie in to the science fiction as a warning yeah. uh, type of thing. Yeah, and again, like solid premise. I mean, I think you could totally make a riveting movie with this premise. It's just, you know, this isn't it. But oh, yeah. oh one more thought: the yeah. world building you mentioned for Logan's Run, the world building for this. Why do they all carry nukes? Just we were to put a bunch of nukes on this in case we ever want to blow up these forests. <laughs> Everybody in the future yeah. has nukes. Come on. <laughs> Pocket Good point. Nuke. Good point. Pocket nuke. Right. Well, they were small. Amendment. That actually Second brings us amendment. to our our next <laughs> our next movie, Andromeda Strain. Um, so, uh, I had never seen this before, but I read the book when it came out. Um, and I didn't remember it all that well. I just remembered sort of the basic setup. Uh, the basic setup, I guess I'll say is that there's a, uh, a town in New Mexico where everybody dies after a government satellite lands there, uh, which has brought back an alien, some sort of alien pathogen. And the story concerns the scientists who are tasked with 
uh, containing and um, understanding uh, the nature of this alien pathogen. Uh, how about Andrea? Had you ever seen this before? I had never seen it before, and I did not read the book. Or and I had they made a TV show of it. Oh, too, it's by Michael somewhere. Crichton. I guess yes. that, I don't know if I said that, but the same author as you know Jurassic yes. Park and stuff like that. Okay, yes. sorry. Go ahead. Um, I did not. I had never read it, and I had never seen the movie, but I uh, was aware of it. And um, and I had they had made a TV show of it a few years ago. Uh, and by a few years ago, I mean like fifteen. <laughs> um, <laughs> um, which I also had not seen, so I knew it was about some kind of plague, but that's all I knew about. It. Mm-hmm. So I came into it with a reasonably clean slate. So what um, were your overall impressions of the movie? Well, to me, it felt like the best movie of the bunch, mm. um, just in a plot sense in that, you know, it had a, it had a point, it, ha- you know, it had a, a goal and it met the goal and it didn't just end. Um, and people had stuff to do. <laughs> um, and there was a puzzle that they had to figure out. Um you know, but it also had that odd coldness of an early seventies movie. Mm-hmm. Um, but you know, I think this goes to Tom's point about people, all scientists being you know young and beautiful. Um, there were actually people who look like scientists in this. <laughs> you know, like no offense to old- any scientists who might be listening. Yeah. Who, who might be young and beautiful? <laughs> yes, no, no, no offense to young, beautiful scientists anywhere. Um, but they looked like real people, um, you know, which is the the joy of 1970s is not everybody was gorgeous. Not everybody had to be beautiful to be a, a movie star. Um, that was uh, very nice. Um, and, you know, it was intellectual. Uh, it was interesting. Um, the whole, you know, the, the giant cylinder, whatever, uh, different levels of clean, you know, clean rooms was interesting. Um, it didn't have any emotion to it really, but, uh, but it was yeah. interesting. Well, uh, me, that's the best I could say is interesting. Just, just explain that. So these, these scientists get sent to this government lab, which I'm sure bears no resemblance to any <laughs> yeah. facility that actually has ever existed in reality, but was, is pretty super <laughs> cool. Um, and this lab is sort of subterranean with multiple levels and has an, some sort of automatic system where I, it's going to yeah. get blown up with a nuclear bomb. In the event yeah. of any sort of um, emergency, unless you <laughs> five minutes in five minutes turn a key at a particular yeah, it's, place, it's so ridiculous. <laughs> um, but so yeah, so so Matt, uh, overall impressions of the Andromeda Strain? Yeah, so I, I've seen this one before a few times, and you know, as a kid, I loved it. I think I, I first encountered this uh, as a teenager, maybe or younger, and um, I was just super enamored by the whole kind of scientific rigor. I mean, you know, yeah. com- coming back to it, you know, as an adult, you can see, oh, that's kind of ridiculous. But yeah. like, but like as a kid, I was like, oh, they have to go through these levels of decontamination. And then um, even even today, I, I really found that like their process of elimination to figure out exactly what the pathogen was, uh, was quite riveting. And it was also horrifying. I, I hope they didn't kill any animals to, to oh yes god oh, yeah. no it, it like, says it says no animals were harmed during, yeah during i mean making this movie. um but like the way that they were like well let's let's put the air through a filter at this particular uh thickness yeah. and see how it affects it and then like where they're looking at the 
under the microscope and then the, like the thing grows for the first time. And that freaked me the, the hell out yeah. the first time I saw it. Um, you know, once they get to the, the sort of uh, bio containment bunker place, I thought the special effects there were actually great. Yeah. Um, before that, it was really campy. Like there's this, this terrible tendency of these, you know, seventies and early eighties science fiction films to do these like really bad spacesuits with like tubes coming out of them. It just looks really fake. But like once they get underground, I was like, Oh, that's, that's actually decent. Um, and then I thought that they, uh, predicted a lot of modern tech. Um, so like with the hand, the palm scanner to go into the mm -hmm. base and then, you know, like, uh, where they had the recording recorded computer voice and he's like, you know, the scientist yeah. is like, oh, who are you? And they're like, oh, it's a recorded voice. She's a 16-year-old woman in Ohio. <laughs> that she, You know, she sells her voice. And I was like, oh, that's kind of like Siri, like when they tracked down <laughs> Siri. Um, and th there were other things like that. Um, and uh, one thing that really struck out at me was was the, uh, the scene near the beginning where the two uh, airmen, I guess, are going to the, the town where the satellite has crashed. And... Um, you don't see them. You just hear what they're uh, conveying over the radio. And it's yeah. like, oh, my God, what's that? Oh, my God. And, and they did it in a way it was like it was riveting. And I, and I was immediately reminded of the scene in say. Close Encounter. I was good. Yep. <laughs> with the air traffic controllers. <laughs> yep. Where you don't see what the pilots are seeing on the plane. You just hear what they're reporting to air traffic control. And I was like, oh, Spielberg totally stole yep. that. Like he Absolutely. totally stole that from that scene. Cause it, but he made it better. He made yeah, it better. He improved it. Because Spielberg is a great director. Yes. And there was also this, um, and I felt Spielberg did this in Close Encounters where there's like less of a, uh, some scenes, not every scene, but, but like less of a focus on individual characters, but more on the group. And I, it almost feels like, I don't want to say improv, but it, it just feels very natural because like everyone's sort of talking at once. And what about this? And what about this? And it feels like, oh, you're actually in the room watching people work. And I, mm -hmm. and I, and like that part of it really worked for me. Yeah. Um, the part where they're like going to each uh, scientist's house and pulling them out of whatever they're doing. Like, no, you need to come with me right now. This is important. I can't tell you what it is, but let's go. Um, and then when they get there and, and, um, you know the de decontamination process was a little absurd, but I, I liked I liked it. Um, and then, well, like I said, the science of it was yeah. Let me let cool. me pick up on that, Matt, because because that for me definitely is the strength of this movie. Is you see this group of scientists. So so there's a puzzle because there are two survivors in this town, uh, two survivors of the yeah. plague. There's a a little baby and an old alcoholic, and then the question is why did they survive when everybody else died and you know most i feel like most movies today yeah like all the scientists would be young and hot and then they would be like having stupid like chest beating fights with each other or it'd be like <laughs> a romance or something and it's not it's just like there's these middle-aged scientists they're all pretty calm and competent and they're just working in a calm competent way to try to solve this scientific puzzle that's of such high uh importance and i feel like we need more movies like that and i really yeah. liked uh, that that's what this one was about. Um, and we'll get back to Tom too. Tom, anything you want to, you want to add here? Yeah. I, uh, I, I had seen this movie when I was eight. So I question what you said, Dave, about having, uh, read the book when it first came out, uh, because you're like 10 years younger than me. And I think the movie came out after many years after the book, but 
Oh, but, well, I uh, guess, no, I guess that's a good point. Because, yeah, because the book was 67, so I obviously didn't read it when it first came out. But uh, I felt like, I feel like at the time I read it is when it got, maybe this is just When it got my, popular. Yeah, mm. I because, just feel like there was this moment when suddenly everyone was reading Michael Crichton. Yeah, it was yeah. right after Jurassic Disclosure. Park. No, it was before Jurassic Park. It was right after Disclosure came out. Um, mm. the, the book Disclosure came out and it was really famous already. And then they made a movie with Michael Douglas. And then that made it even more famous. And then everybody was like, who's this Michael Crichton guy? And they started reading his books. And then Jurassic Park came out a few years, three years later. But Andromeda Strain, I, I didn't know until Disclosure came out that it was him. And the way I found out was a friend of mine who I grew up with said, hey, you know, the, that movie Disclosure, he's like, it's written by this, the book was written by this guy, Michael Crichton. He also wrote Andromeda Strain. And then I was like, holy cow, because me and him, me and this friend of mine both loved Andromeda Strain. We were like eight years old. We saw the movie and we're blown away by it. And to an eight-year-old, like the science was flawless and the movie <laughs> was just super cool. And the whole concept of like the key and like having to climb up this ladder and go to like different levels and try to get to one of the stations where you could turn the key is uh, was, was fascinating. I, we used to play, we used to act that out all the time, like climbing trees, be like, duck, oh, wow. you know, like, <laughs> and uh, it, 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 this movie really made an impression on me as a kid. So when you said this was one of the movies we we're going to watch, I was really excited to see it again. And I really liked it again. Like, like, I feel like every shot, the cinematography is amazing. Every shot is like a photo from the old Life magazine. <laughs> yeah. um, there were some really prescient moments about technology. One of my favorites was when the woman gets the woman scientist gets really angry at the computer and starts yelling at it because at that time nobody had ever been angry at voicemail yet yeah. it, you know or a, what it, not voicemail but one of those you know automatic uh, voice menu messages yeah. yeah and she's like yelling at it like i said this ragweed pollen she gets like all <laughs> upset at it and i was like oh my gosh i was like you, you watch that and you're just like yeah but then you you think about it and you're like no this was like 1971 or whatever Nobody had ever, he had to imagine that from scratch. Yeah. yeah. Nobody had ever felt that emotion before at a computer. Okay. Actually, interesting trivia. Do you know who did the special effects for this? Doug no. Trumbull. Douglas Trumbull. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, interesting. Clearly, he, he put his work into this one. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> they, they gave him more of a budget. Right. But I, you know, watching this movie again, I just really liked it again. I thought, you know, I saw some flaws in it. There's a, there's a couple of things. It, it wouldn't survive today as a new movie. It, there wasn't a big enough, you know, like chase scene at the end with explosions. But um, to me, as a as an eight year old, it was it blew me away. And even now, I'd say it's definitely worth watching if you've never seen it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I, I think also, you know, talking about message movies, it was like it wasn't that it just was like an alien pathogen randomly landed on earth that the, the u.s military was looking in space for bioweapons yes. yeah and and the actual biohazard containment facility was bioweapon research yes and yeah. and they realized this halfway through and, and they're like, oh no that's not why it is and it's like oh no very clearly that's what it is and it's yeah. just like it came to bite humanity on the ass yeah and, and they just happened to get lucky that the virus just mutated to a non-lethal form uh, which I thought was kind of a cop out, but it is. It's it was. A cop -out. <laughs> it was, but they but they got there really quickly. I, I like that they had the the puzzle where they figure out like why does a what does a baby, a crying baby who's perfectly healthy, have in common with a seventy five year old sterno drinker? Why <laughs> why are the, why is their blood the only blood that this thing can't invade? 
that was such a cool like setup where they started that right away, where they and find was, the crying yeah. baby and they carry it all the way through and they finally figure it out. And it's this moment of triumph. Even again, as an eight year old, I remember being like, oh, they figured it out. It's so cool. <laughs> and it's just like the, the solution isn't some like stupid techno babble. It's actually like, oh no, it can only survive between a very narrow pH range. Yeah. Yeah. And I was like, that's pretty cool. Like, I like that's not something you'll see in. A film today because they're like, well, the, you know, would the, too the general audience understand what a yeah exactly range is, and and they would just you know do something else. But um, I, I like that they weren't afraid to be scientific to show yeah. like how science works, the process of elimination. Obviously, it's you know, not super accurate, but there was like as as an engineer, like as as a, as a person who writes software, like I'm like, oh, I can I, I love their process of elimination. Yeah. Yeah. And I want to say too that, that, you know, this is a two hour movie and it doesn't yeah. feel like it. It feels like about an hour and 20 minutes. It's, it goes fast. Yeah. Um, all right, cool. Yes. Yeah, so we should probably move on. I guess I'll say, I mean, that if you look at the suite of movies that we, that I guess that I picked, um, <laughs> you know, and you look at some of the issues they're dealing with, you know, pandemics, I mean, AI, which we're about to get to, you know, ecological collapse, um nuclear youth, war youth culture nuclear war yeah you would have to say i mean it's very tight they did a pretty good job of you know um honing in on some of the issues that were going to be important clearly we're terrible at, at heeding the warnings of yeah the completely <laughs> right i just want to know why there was just a random shot of a naked hippie girl in there anybody oh, in the yes, andromeda it, when they Yes. Yeah. Oh, oh, they, at the when at they the, go into that town. <laughs> yeah. And I was like, because then people will leave the film, be like, did you catch the nudie scene? Right. Yeah, the and then everybody goes and watches it. <laughs> oh, oh, really? Scene. There's a nude scene. Although yeah, it was kind of, like, it was kind of interesting how that was shot because the they're looking in the windows and then yeah, and there's the boxes and yeah, the, I thought that was that really like, visually interesting. So yeah, and yeah, again, again with them being no, um. I think they might have done it once. Yeah, I think there was like one other researching part. Researching the, I don't know. Yeah, but again, about how like you know people were trying to be in the seventies, trying to be yeah. more kind of creative about presentation. It hadn't sort yeah. of all gotten. And I appreciate that. No, yeah. I sure, love a good yeah. split screen. <laughs> yeah. 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 Um, all right. So how about Colossus, the Forbin Project? So I'd never seen this one either, uh, but um, there was a Robert Asprin introduction. Actually, it's the introduction to the Thieves' World, the first Thieves' World anthology that I just read over and over and over again as a kid. And uh, he talks about how, as a joke, one of the contributors uh, jokingly referred to Thieves' World as Colossus the Asprin Project because it's gotten <laughs> so out of control. <laughs> and so, again, this was another movie that sort of I'd never seen but had sort of a, a mythical, you know, uh, feel to me um and so uh so had anyone seen this one previously nope nope no. never even heard of it no all right interesting yeah okay so um about tom overall impressions of colossus the forbin project i really liked it i i uh i i had heard of it before and uh i thought it was probably going to be okay, but I, I really enjoyed it. I thought the pacing was good. There were some quirky, definitely some odd things like the funny shunted in love story that they stuck in there. Mm. It seemed like the That's director, seemed like the producer wanted that in there and insisted on it or something. <laughs> it didn't seem to belong, but it was kind of entertaining too. And, uh, and, and apart from also the, the setup of it where they're like, Oh, we've, 
right at the beginning, they're like, we've built this computer that's going to make all our decisions for it. And no human being can ever touch it. Like there's no way we can ever interfere. No matter what it does, we can't interfere with it. It's perfect. That'll go perfectly fine. Yeah. Yeah. I was like, well, what could possibly go wrong? But once you, once you swallow that, which is difficult to swallow, then everything else you're like, yeah, well, this all makes kind of sense. And it was, uh, it was engaging. I thought the, the kind of German accented main character held my attention he was this kind of iconoclast, brilliant scientist, computer guy who like had everything figured out. And then when it starts to go wrong, he you can see him kind of he, he's not very ex, he doesn't have a lot of different range of expressions, but you can <laughs> you can tell what he's thinking, and you can tell he's like, oh, that sucks, but let me try to put my mind on this and I'll figure it out. And you see him working really hard to figure it out, and you see it going gradually yeah. wrong to the point where he's like, I'm not going to be able to figure this out. And the computer is so maddening. Um, Again, there's a couple of quirky things. Like it's like, oh, it designed the perfect voice for itself. And and it's like, oh, I'm this peaceful. I'm here to help you humans. I'm going to make everything better. I might have to take control away from you. I want you to design the perfect voice for me. It's going to be this totally psychopathic robotic (laughs) voice. Yeah. Um, But, you know, I thought it was, it was once you swallow the premise, which again was hard, I thought it was a really cool, riveting and believable movie. Did you say, I don't know if you said explicitly, Tom, that this was re- replacing our nuclear arsenal under the control of this? Yeah. Um, I, I didn't, computer. I didn't, no, I didn't get into that, but yeah, that's, yeah. 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 So, so that's the premise basically is that they, they decide, you know, rather than trust, entrust these sorts of decisions to fallible humans who get angry and fearful and, you know, whatever, we're just going to have a machine coldly and logically be making these strategic decisions um (laughs) you mentioned i want to just you mentioned tom that the um main character has a german accent so his actual name so his stage name is eric Braden, but Mm -hmm. his real name is hans gudegast and uh it says universal pictures executive lou wasserman told him that no one would be allowed to star in an american film if they had a german name so that's yeah. why. That's where the Eric. Braden. I thought they were intentionally riffing off of Werner von Braun. Yeah, mm. yeah. I thought that was kind of. He was just a tall sort of operation paperclip scientist. And it's like <laughs> let's let's entrust him with all of our nukes. <laughs> yeah, I mean it's it's possible they had that in mind too. Although they originally tried to get Charlton Heston and mm. somebody else, but that is were. a very Charlton Heston role. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Um. But so so Andrea, overall thoughts on. This movie? Uh, yeah, it was ridiculous setup. Um, I was, first of all, uh, this will mean nothing to any, this will mean nothing to anyone but me, but the costume designer with, was Edith Head, who is one of the, um, most famous costume designers in Hollywood and golden era of Hollywood. So it was, uh, shocking to see her name, um, still working in the early seventies. Um, they cast the president who looked exactly like JFK. Right. Um, it sounded like him. Yeah, it sounded like him. Um, and the guy who played Forbin uh, went on to a very, very, very long career on The Young and the Restless. Uh, anybody okay. who knows soap operas knows who he is. Yeah. Um, first time I'd ever seen him that young, though. Um, it starts off great. Oh, I'm sorry. And I want to point out that Marion Ross is in it, Mrs. Cunningham. Mm. from happy days yep she's very young and james hong yeah who was just in uh every everything everywhere all at once 
and is also of course oh, yeah. in one I, of my favorite. He's, he's in like half a second. Yeah, no, he's in. He's, he's in, in there. there. He just he's he only one has one line. Yeah. He's one of the oh, scientists. He, does? he only okay. has one line. I saw, and, I saw his face and I was like, oh, that guy. I love him. He's in. Uh, what else is he in? He's in he's Big in Trouble in Little China. Big Trouble in Little China. Yeah. And like everything, yeah. uh, like every every kung fu movie. And in the I was world. really interesting to see in this one, and I think one other where they had um, a mix of um, genders and people of color as scientists, yes. which I thought yes. was really really interesting. Yeah, um, to do that in the early seventies. Um, okay, but you said it started out great. Yeah, sorry. <laughs> Back on track. Did, but then it didn't continue great. It did not get to continue great. It starts out really interesting. Um, and I really love the scene where the computers are teaching each other yeah. um, and talking about uh, close encounters. It reminded me of the scene where oh, the aliens are playing the music. Yeah. Playing the music oh, yeah. Trying to, you know, communicating. Mm-hmm. That's what it, mm-hmm. So I'm wondering if maybe Spielberg saw that too. Or also War Games, where War Games, it's playing yes. itself. Yes. It was, not, it was not very. Not playing with itself, but playing itself. Playing itself, yeah. <laughs> Yes. It was very, very, t- very similar to War Games. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, but then it just slides off into that weird how to make a martini demo and the date, and I was just like, that was what odd. Was so weird. Yeah. It was so funny when it's like you're you're putting in too much vermouth, professor, yeah. and he's like, oh, well, let me show you what I do next, though. Yeah, and I must have a mistress seven yeah. nights a week. No, and it's like, and it won't buy anything <laughs> yeah. else. Like, I need to have privacy when I go to the bathroom, and he's like, like "No, you no, don't. no, I have to have a no mistress." Privacy. And he's like, "Oh, well, like, that makes sense." What is so, this? Sure. Is so yeah. bizarre. It just went off in a such a strange, strange way that I. That's when I started just to lose interest in it because I'm like, "This is just bizarre." No, I, I, I totally agree. With, I mean, that yeah. So if it's not clear for listeners, basically, Forbin, um, you know, the the machine wants him t- totally under surveillance all the time and he manages to convince it that he has a mistress and she ha- he has to have private time with her and that's how he's communicating with the outside world and i i didn't like that at all i mean i i thought like in in principle it maybe could have been done well but i just felt like the tone changed so much yes, at it was that. completely tone change yep it was goofy but then yeah, i thought yeah. that i thought that the movie then got better again after that i i overall thought this movie was awesome so i, I can say yeah, more okay. about that but i want to get matt matt in here so matt what's your yeah. take on this yeah so i had never seen this and and the uh the initial setup it's like let's put all of our nukes in control of this <laughs> supercomputer and you know, seal it up behind like walls of plasma and make it impossible. To, and then we can trust this 100% forever. Yeah. It's like this, like this, that premise is just so stupid. And yeah. um, I just don't ever see the US military ever not having like, you know, a kill switch. Yeah. Um, but if you're willing to like overlook that ridiculous premise, after that, the movie just gets, it gets really interesting. I thought it was like, um, you know, I, there's another, there's another like me. I was like, oh, that's cool. That was and then, cool. and then the idea that like Colossus wants to speak to its counterpart guardian in Russia and establish a comm link with it. And then I was like, oh, that's cool. And then they have this, like we said, this whole period where they're like teaching each other to communicate and they, they um, or, or teach like creating a shared language between them yeah. and they're using mathematics, which I thought was, uh, actually really well done because yeah. if if uh, any of you are familiar with like 
uh, NASA sent a message from the Arecibo Observatory in the in the 70s, I believe, to uh, outer space, and you know they used mathematics because they're like, well, this would be yeah universal, universal language, language. Universal. universal language. So they start with multiplication tables and then move on from there. And I was like, oh, that's really cool. Um, and uh, yeah, it, it it builds up to this sort of global threat, and then like they're they're basically frozen, and they you know, that the machines are ordering murder and locking <laughs> everyone down. And, and uh, yeah, the moment that it's like, oh, well, I need a mistress. And then I'm going to, this is, you know, how I'm going to secretly communicate with the outside world. And I, I think they could have sold it if they had established that maybe they had some kind of simmering relationship before this, but that, you know, it was always platonic because they, they were professionals and that they maybe had some kind of, uh, you know, interest there or, or even the reverse, maybe they hated each other and they had to pr- pretend to, to love each other, you know, uh, and, and in order to work together, it's like they could, they could have sold it better. I think. Yeah. But, um, like very clearly Spielberg stole this for war games. The idea of this, like comp- even th- just the way that the messages appear, on the on uh, Colossus's screen, like sort yeah. of the scrolling text and the digitized voice, um, and then also, you know, obviously Terminator. This idea of like this AI controlling the nukes. Um, so, like, I think we're supposed to respect Forbin um, as like this scientist who just you know is trying to contain this you know situation that got away from him. But like, I'm just keep looking. I'm like, you're an idiot. Like yeah. I, I couldn't just get over the fact that you, you built this thing and then completely cut off any possible way of stopping it. And right. so anytime we're supposed to feel some kind of sympathy for him being trapped in the situation, I was like, no, you're an idiot. Yeah. Right? Yeah. So you so brought think, it on yeah. yourself. Well, right. I, so yeah. I feel like you could have like solved 90% of the problem with this movie if they just had a kill switch and just for some reason it didn't, you know, work. Colossus was able yeah. to, you know, um, Kill the yeah. kill Circumbe- circumvented or something, yeah. you know. And then the only other thing I'll say is, why did AOL choose the Colossus symbol as their logo? <laughs> <laughs> like they literally did. Like look at it, and you'd be like, "Oh, that's that's Colossus symbol." I mean, I don't know. Maybe yeah, it's but, to but be let like me tell you. Let me tell you why this movie's awesome. Leaving aside the sort okay. of romance subplot, I really <laughs> liked just how at the beginning how Forbin is so confident and yeah. assured and competent and everybody looks up to him and he just always knows exactly what to do. And mm-hmm. you just see him unravel over the course of the movie until by the very end, he's just this broken person. And I thought that yeah. the way it the movie portrayed that was was really well done. And just all the, you know, there's so many movies where the characters are like scientists and the president of the United States and you don't believe for a second they act that they are. But this movie, I'm like, yeah, the president kind of acts like a president. The Soviet premier acts like the Soviet premier. The scientists act like scientists. It was really well done, I thought, in that respect. Yeah. Yeah. And yeah. then at the very end, I thought that Colossus's final monologue was totally badass. Um, it was terrifying. It's too long for me to read the whole thing. I wonder if could I just pick a representative part. I'll just, the, the very end, he says, we can coexist, but only on my terms. You will say you lose your freedom. Freedom is an illusion. All you lose is the emotion of pride. To be dominated by me is not as bad for humankind as to be dominated by others of your species. Your choice is simple. It's just like any time 
the computer Colossus was doing anything. I just thought it was so chilling. I just had yes. such a feeling of doom through the whole movie of, and I, I thought it captured this like the sort of relentless, implacable nature of machine intelligence. Well, they were as, very clever to to have Colossus like usually when it spoke, they had this giant like sign that's like ominously hovering over everyone as it speaks. So it's like subliminally giving you this feeling of being like underneath it. Yeah. Yeah. And I thought the, the, there was a cool question that the whole movie raises where you get to the end and it basically makes that point that you just say it said, Dave, that it's saying, look, you know, you, you may not want to be subjugated to me, but it's better than be, what you're subjugated to now. Like you're, it's going to be more peaceful now. Everything is going to be fine. And I was like, that's an interesting question because now from what it's saying, yeah, I can't argue that maybe things won't be more peaceful and safe and secure now, although you're giving up all the freedom you would ever have. You have absolutely no freedom now. And if anybody steps out of line, Colossus is going to nuke you. So, But nobody's going to step out of line because nobody wants to get nuked. So it, it is an interesting question of like, would you would you trade all your freedom for knowing that there is going to be peace? And I can hear like, you know, if, if there was a lot of people listening, I can hear them all saying, no, no, of course not. Of course you wouldn't. But then you're like, okay, well, but is it worth it then to have like, if Colossus's point is true, like, no, you don't want to be subjugated to me, but you're already subjugated to something worse. Yeah. This is better for you. It's, it's mm. kind of a chilling, like, yeah, it, it's kind of a classic, something that grows in your mind the more you think about it. No, exactly. Can we talk about the ending? Oh, go ahead, Dave. Well, well, no, exactly. I mean, I think that that's, yeah, one of the things that's really well done about the movie is that, you know, Colossus was built to stop, to prevent a nuclear war between the United States and the Soviet Union. And it does exactly that in a very straightforward, logical, successful way. Yeah. Um, but after exploding nuclear bombs. <laughs> right. Well, but it's, it, it says, it says explicitly, it says, I killed thousands to prevent the future deaths of millions. Mm -hmm. You know? Right. Makes logical so sense. Right? As, as I'm watching this, and very Star Trek, very very uh, Mr. Spock. Yeah, one there's life that, for millions. There's that scene where they're like trying to replace the warheads with like uh, dummy uh, warheads. What do you call them? Dummy warheads. Yeah, like, yeah. And I was like, oh, maybe Colossus knows, and this is the whole game all along that it's intentionally trying to disarm the world, and then it's going to be like, see, I disarmed the world. Yeah. <laughs> and then I was like, oh, that's clever. Um, so we were we were talking before about endings, like a lot of these movies from the seventies just sort of like end. Yes, and and I it feel stopped. like this one it just like it stops. Like, yeah, yeah. It's like oh, you know, I'm gonna take control of the world. Has this ominous speech, and then uh, Forbin says, you know, over my dead body, and and then the movie ends. And I was like, interesting yeah. because like that's how like a lot of films today would start right and then, you, <laughs> then you'd have this whole like period of rebellion and and um you know suspense and all that but it, it, i just thought it was an interesting uh take on that uh but but again i feel like it's a problem with the language of film you know that it's like from a plot standpoint it's a perfectly logical place to end the story where yeah you know Colossus is building an even bigger supercomputer. Humanity is totally subjugated. Uh, Forbin is completely broken. But it's just like the credits start playing. You're just like, what the, what, what the, where yeah. did that come from? But it's just like they yeah. need like, so, but the, the story's fine. It's just like the presentation of how the film wraps up needs more 
you know, the, the audience needs more cueing that the film is about to end. Mm. In my opinion. Yeah. No, I was, I was going to say earlier. Yeah. It, this is another one that just stops. Mm. I genuinely was like, did that, did this just cut off? Did I just miss the ending? Did somehow, did I, <laughs> you know, I was like, I really couldn't, I was very confused. Well, have you guys read a lot of 1960s science fiction books, novels? No, a long time so, ago no. I did. Cause, cause a lot of them, there was like some weird evolution going on with science fiction writing back then where like everything started out with short stories. It was like Ray Bradbury yeah. and like all the greats were just writing short stories. And then they were like, Oh, we can actually make money if we write full length novels. But to them, a full length novel often would be like 20,000 words. <laughs> and they would write these novellas that they would basically sell in as books. And then they started like putting them together and putting like three novellas together. And so you'll read these like 1960s science fiction books that seem really weird because like the first 20,000 words is like really cool. And then the second two chunks of 20,000 words <laughs> each are, seem like tacked on. It's and like they don't can- seem to. Mechanical for Leibowitz is like that, where it's like is it like that? three well, sections and they're, they're interrelated, but like there's definitely a different tone between them. That's very common back then. And, and Roger Zelazny wrote a few like that too. And there was, there was tons of books back then like that. And then I finally figured out that's what they were doing that because I would read like liner notes or whatever about the books. And I would, I would read like, Oh, this started out as this. He published this 20,000 word novella and then his publisher wanted him to turn it into well, a book. So he wrote this was actually a, uh, adapted from a novel, I think. Yeah. Wait. So I wonder if it was that kind of novel. I wonder if. Seems not. Seems like not because this has such a defined beginning, middle, and end. You couldn't see how it could possibly be three yeah. stories. But. It says it is based upon the 1966 science fiction novel Colossus by Dennis Feltham Jones. Huh. So yeah, they may have just been following what happens in this, you know, forty thousand, sixty thousand word science fiction novel. Huh. Um. Any other thoughts on just this group of movies as a whole? Uh. Andrea, any thoughts on well, I these mean, five movies? You know, what I said before is that they, they all seemed like message movies. Um, and I think that is true of a lot of the, what came out of the 50s, the 60s, and 70s in science fiction, which was, you know, you should be aware, you should be afraid of this. <laughs> Here's what, you know, it, it was Matt, you just made that point that it was just like, or no, I'm sorry, Tom. That oh, this this could be great, but we could also really fuck everything up. So just be aware of that. Um, but, but you said you I, totally disagree with this idea that science fiction movies were more serious and mature in the '70s, and that Star Wars kind of dumbed everything down and made it all action blockbuster kind of stuff. I, but this it doesn't it doesn't have to it, it does does science fiction really have to come with a message? You can have a message and you can still make a good movie. None of, I don't think any of these really hit the, the good, the sweet spot between here's a message and here's a good movie telling us that. None of them really hit that very well. Um, as a mature movie. And I'm just talking like as a, as a f- person who has worked in film and who writes, it does, they're not great movies. <laughs> yeah. You can make a message movie and it can be interesting. Um. Uh, these did not do that. These, these yeah. did not fulfill those requirements for a good movie. And you know, like Star Wars ruining science fiction. Come on. Yeah. 
Please. <laughs> no. It's no, a fun it's, adventure movie. Why is that we, bad? <laughs> we definitely have gone in some bad directions with everything have everybody having to be young and everybody Yeah. You know, well, everything that's a societal having to have this, thing. Yeah, and everything having having to have a death star at the end that you can blow up and like that that gets a little tiring, but but no, I think Star Wars definitely improved things. It was so refreshing when that's why everybody that's why there were lines around the block when yeah. it first came out, why everybody went back to see it again and again because we were like finally a cool movie that's like speculative in nature, but that's actually a good movie. It has good characters, good it's chemistry fun. between the actors. You know, it's, it's fun. fun. Yeah. And, and, and who cares if it has a message or not? Now, yeah, can you do that and a message? Sure. But, you know, at least let's have a good movie. Well, I mean, it is a message movie, anti-fascist movie. Oh, yeah. How is yeah, it definitely. not an anti-fascist movie? Yeah. De- yeah. No, definitely. <laughs> See, Matt, what do you think about this group of movies taken as a whole? Yeah, I mean, um, I don't know if it's my personal experience or, you know, so I I might be generalizing, but I I feel like viewers today are a lot more discerning about stuff that they uh, watch in in the sense that it's like, you you couldn't, I don't think you can get away with these types of like hitting over the head messaging. Um, And I think that being more more subtle with your messages and 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 um you know letting letting the the viewer come to their own kind of you know opinions Conclusion. about yeah conclusions about about uh what these things mean um I, I i've kind of um you know lost my faith in uh you know science fiction as a kind of cautionary tale like i i I'm like, you know, we've had half a century or more of, of these cautionary tales and, and mm. we're still, you know, heading headlong into the apocalypse. It's like, <laughs> um, I, I, you know, but, but they're, they're certainly make you think, right. And, um, maybe scare you a little bit, entertain you. Um, so like, um, yeah, like, you know, I, I think that oftentimes films reflect the anxiety of the times and very yeah. clearly yeah. there was a lot of anxiety about nuclear war and environmental degradation. And, um, you know, I, I think computers were starting to get very popular. You know, the, the integrated circuit was invented like slightly before they went to the moon. And, and um, so I think some of the first integrated circuits were used on the Apollo program. So it was like, computers were starting to be, you know, used in, in businesses and workplaces and people are like, well, what is this thing that's encroaching and taking my job? And I think that, you know, a lot of people saw the writing on the wall and, and, and maybe envisioned where, where we might be today. So it's like, it's interesting, like watching these films and, and seeing like, we're dealing with a lot of the same issues. And and well, so I think that's what I kind of took out of it. Let, let me just make a point about science fiction as a cautionary tale, because, you know, you say like, oh, well, you know, we had all these cautionary tales, science fiction movies, and it didn't prevent all the problems that we have today, um, which, you know, I, I definitely take that point. But what about all the problems that we might have had today that actually did get prevented by this movie? Like we, by these movies, like we didn't have not actually had a full scale nuclear war. And yeah, I mean, look at, if you go yeah. back to the 50s, how... Um, heedless military planners were about the prospect of full-scale nuclear war. Like they had like no concept of how bad this would be, and I, I do think that decades of um, 
I mean, I went to right. no contact, I, I don't, but okay, I don't think here. it's 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 like you know either or black or white. I I I I just sometimes I wonder about the effectiveness of the of the cautionary tale. But yeah, I mean, obviously, like um, you know, we've had environmental movements and you know anti nuclear movements and um you know anti you know against nuclear proliferation and and now it's like you know everyone's like well we should probably slow down our ai research and like science fiction authors are like we've been telling you this for decades <laughs> um yeah so i'm not saying it has it has zero effect i just um you know and, it, and it's like you, you look at stuff that that comes out now i mean i think like you don't get something like black mirror which is or basically what I see is like dark science fiction cautionary tales w- without these films, without, you know, a history of, of all this stuff in the past. But it's not like we're, we're not making bad cautionary tale science fiction now too. Um, I don't know if anybody saw the power on Amazon prime. Um, no, but I saw the trailer. Yeah. It's, it, it's based on a book. Um, women develop this new organ that shocks people people and the power dynamics of society change like when l- literally women. with electrical like yes. lightning bolts shocks people. exactly um and it's such a great premise but it was so my apologies to the filmmakers really badly executed it was so on the nose it was the similar to these things where it's just so on the nose and it's all about the message not the story um uh that we're still doing that but then we get, Whoa. you know, the cautionary tale science fiction, like, um, crap. What's the the Alex Garland movie? The the guy who goes oh, Deus, the, the, Deus, De, uh, Deus Ex, Deus, Ex, Ex Machina. Machina. Ex Machina. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. no, great, uh, great film. Yeah, great yeah. film, and also a message film. Um, yeah. So you know, yeah. we we can do both sides of this. Yeah. Um, well, in Black Mirror, that's a perfect yeah. example of yeah. message, you know, cautionary that's still entertaining and not yeah. boring. Or- uh didactic yeah didactic that's exactly the right word didactic and condescending <laughs> um all right cool so we're, we're pretty much out of time so you should probably start wrapping this up so uh tom any final thoughts on this whole phenomenon we've been discussing well I will say that we have a much better chance of a lot of people listening to this if we all take our clothes off <laughs> <laughs> right <laughs> I don't really have any. any I've had my clothes off the whole time. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I don't know if I've mentioned this before, but I always have my clothes off. (laughs) (laughs) Let's just do an all nude Geek's Guide to the Galaxy. All nude, all the time. Was anybody just like shocked by that scene though, where Michael York is suddenly like, "Honey, we, we need to take yeah. our clothes off before they freeze on us," and she's like, "Oh right," and then they take their clothes off, and you're like, "Oh okay." So well, now right. you're naked and freezing. Now you're naked, <laughs> and then they, and then five minutes later, they put the wet clothes back yeah, on because they're like, "Whatever, we know, we, we know the real reason." Well, <laughs> apparently, apparently they they edited. They actually was like a whole like extended nude scene there, and it got oh. edited out so that they wouldn't get an R rating for the movie. <laughs> Interesting. Okay. Well, no, I I love. Uh, old science fiction movies i did not want to watch silent running again nor planet of the apes again i enjoyed planet of the apes beneath the planet of the apes more than i thought i was going to um i really liked the foreman project and the andromeda strain and uh what was the other one we watched uh 
Logan's, Logan's run. run. Logan's, Logan's run. run. Yeah, no, I couldn't stand that one. Um, <laughs> but uh, but all they all have really cool premises. They all just like you said, they they really didn't have great plots. A, a couple of them, but I uh, know it was it was fun. It was fun fun watching them and fun uh, making fun of some of them. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Matt, any final thoughts? Uh, yeah, no, it was. Uh, you know, it was, it was cool to see these films, you know, to watch them, some of them again, some of them for the first time. And um, yeah, I think my favorite probably was Andromeda Strain and and then uh, maybe parts of Colossus uh, or, or Logan's Run. But uh, I, I thought one of the, the coolest things was just to see how, um, you know, future directors came along and took pieces of this and, and yeah. made it their own, like uh you know rob grant and doug naylor who took like you know silent running and turned that into red dwarf and and you know douglas adams into hitchhiker's guide and and uh spielberg you know ran with some of these ideas and you could you could just see how how like a really good director and storyteller could could take any premise and and make it great and um so it, it was just cool to see like the the bits and pieces of that and um yeah, just kind of get a glimpse of of uh, sort of the the zeitgeist of of the seventies and what what sort of anxieties were going on with people and and um, yeah, it was it was just fun to to watch these films. All right, cool. And Andrea, final thoughts. Um, well, I watched them all yesterday, one after the other, and I don't oh recommend ever doing that in nineteen seventies <laughs> movies <laughs> because oh, by the end, Sorry. I was uh, I was very oof. Yeah, don't do that. Um, <laughs> uh, it was it was an interesting look back at my childhood, uh, the nineteen you know the nineteen seventies, and and um, it, you know as as I said earlier, it's interesting seeing them having a lot of representation of of people of color and uh, and women, um, but it was also there was also a crossover of you know especially in. Andromeda Strain, seeing women going, Jeremy, you're ruining our party. <laughs> it's like you yeah. can't, you can't. It, there's still that, you know, housewife, 1960s housewife uh, women going on, which which got Although on the skin. I don't know if we mentioned the grouchy female scientist in Andromeda Strain, but that we was did the not best talk part of it. the movie. Yes, she was great. She, she, was, she great. was great. And Michael Crichton has a history of that kind of character. Uh, he must have known somebody like that because she pops up in several of his books. <laughs> um, but yeah, uh, uh, it was an interesting look back at my childhood. Um, but it's it's funny how the ones that I had seen uh, Logan's Run and uh, Beneath the Planet of the Apes just didn't <laughs> never really measures up to how you see it as a child. <laughs> yeah, and whenever I've encountered this with a lot of the movies that we've done, of uh, you know, seeing them and remembering them being great, and then watching them again as an adult and going, "Yikes! Oh, it's not good." Yeah, that's an important. If you want to enjoy these movies, listeners, yeah. make sure that you're 12 years old yeah. and that it's 1975. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Key. Key yeah things there yeah. Uh, although again I, I i honestly thought colossus the foreman project was awesome i i seem to have liked it more than anybody else but i would i would recommend that as like a great sort of creepy ai kind of movie and you learn how to make a perfect martini yeah <laughs> yeah <laughs> right yeah. um and andromeda strain i thought was pretty good um i mean logan's run has its moments you, you could probably skip uh the other two yeah but um 
Yeah, I mean, but they all had kind of interesting ideas. And yeah, I totally agree that it's sort of a, an interesting time capsule of of just seeing what yeah. science fiction was like. Uh, I, th- I think these movies do, do give you a really sort of representative sample of, of some of the, um, you know, the tropes and, um, you know. Yeah. Uh, 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 what's the word? Uh, concerns or preoccupations of, of 70s science fiction. So, so definitely all interesting from that perspective. Um, all right, cool. But so why don't we wrap things up there? So we've been speaking with Andrea Kale, Matthew Kressel, and Tom Gerentzer. So thanks, everyone, so much for joining us. Thanks, Dave. Thanks, Dave. Thank you. And that was our panel. So big thanks again to Andrea Kale, Matthew Kressel, and Tom Gerentzer for joining us on the show. This episode of Geek's Guide to the Galaxy was made possible thanks to support from listeners like you. So if you enjoy the show and want it to continue, please support us on Patreon over at patreon.com geeks or via PayPal over at geeksguideshow.com crowdfunding. All right, so that was our show. So thanks, everyone, for listening, and we'll see you next time. The Geek's Guide to the Galaxy is a production of Wired.com. For more information about the show, visit geeksguideshow.com. To learn more about your host, visit davidbarkertley.com. Music and voiceover produced by yours truly, Jack Kincaid. If you enjoyed this program, tell your friends. If you didn't enjoy it, tell no one. Thank you for listening.